Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, we will be speaking with Dory K. Fontaine, PhD, RN, FAAN, Dean and Professor at the University of Virginia School of Nursing. Dr. Fontaine will be sharing her insights in creating a healthy work environment through compassionate care. She will be giving this as a plenary session at the Monday, January 19th, 2015 session of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's annual congress. The title of the talk will be Creating a Healthy Work Environment Through Compassionate Care. Dr. Fontaine, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. So the first question I have for you was to ask you to briefly summarize the most salient points that you mm-hmm. found through your years of working on this topic. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was president of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses in 2003 and four, and about a year later, we came up with the idea to create standards for a healthy work environment because we were really worried and concerned about the difficulty of retaining critical care nurses, how hard they were working, how tough the job was, and so in doing that, we developed standards for a healthy work environment. And one of the issues today, and they're still very important, and I'll tell you what the standards are in a minute, but the first thing is to really express that that was 10 years ago. But indeed, the work environment has gotten even more complex. And if anything, we're having higher rates of burnout. We're having higher rates of moral distress, where people go home feeling that they weren't able to do what they truly needed to do for their patient and family and actually acted against their conscience. And while nursing and a nursing association develop these standards, they're for medicine, they apply to physicians, nurses, the whole healthcare team, respiratory therapists and all. And so we are seeing a lot of trouble in the environment right now. And so looking back at these standards that we developed 10 years ago, they're still very, very valid. So the standards are communication, collaboration, effective decision-making, appropriate staffing, which we're always struggling with, meaningful recognition, and the last one, authentic leadership. So really, skilled communication and collaboration are what I'm going to spend more time talking about tomorrow because truly that's, I think, the linchpin of everything else. You know, people stay in the environment because of positive communication. And we have done several studies over the years. AACN has partnered with Vital Smarts in a study called Silence Kills, which showed in 2005 that when nurses feel intimidated or when they feel bullied, they don't speak up. And in fact, patients can die. They're not going to get the right treatment. In a follow-up study six years later, looking at operating room nurses too, it was called Silent Treatment, we identified the fact that even though we have checklists, and even though people can follow them along, that if communication isn't good and if collaboration isn't supported in an environment, if there's lateral violence, we call it bullying, people being mean to each other, people not knowing each other's names, people treating each other with disrespect, what we found is that there's still safety, safety problems People when people don't speak up. What are your suggestions for us in terms of fostering a open a communication mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I'm really going to be talking about. The fact that burnout is there, that we have nurses and physicians who have really lost their way and find that there's not a meaningful life there. The reason they went into medicine and healthcare 
they're just feeling terribly burnt out. So some of the solutions that we're going to be looking at and that we're doing now at the University of Virginia include something we're calling our Resiliency Initiative, Compassionate Care Through Resiliency. What we're trying to do is to create healthcare workers, whether it's nurses or physicians. You know, I'm a dean of nursing, so I work mostly with nursing students, but I also am in a big academic healthcare center with a world-class school of medicine. And so we are doing a lot together with nursing and medicine, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Before I do that, though, I wanted to just share a little story that puts this in, in perspective. One of my Virginia colleagues in our School of Business has written a book called Powered by Feel, How Individuals, Teams, and Companies Excel. And he, it's a story of a surgeon. And if you listen to this, I think you'll see how the compassionate care work in creating resilient practitioners makes a lot of sense. So this story says the surgeon had two routes to the operating room. One took him through a dark hallway filled with empty boxes, and the other more time-consuming route took him through the main hospital where he passed windows, plants, and co-workers. So the latter gave him lots of energy, which the former did not. And if you, if he were your heart doctor, ask yourself what route you would want him to take before he operated on you. Fast and discouraging or slow and uplifting? So I think that story really mentions the pace of life. You know, we're always rushing, 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 rushing. And we have to slow it down. There's a you know, a myth that multitasking, we get a lot more done, when in fact, studies out of University of Michigan suggest that multitasking actually fatigues the brain, and they can show this on MRIs. So what we're trying to do at the University of Virginia is to really take back the meaning that people have in healthcare and start with our nursing students and create resilient practitioners. And how we're doing that is looking at something called compassionate care. And what we're saying is that the first thing is that people have to learn to be fully present, fully present in the moment. And that is what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is a way to pay attention, not be judgmental, to pay attention with an open heart, open awareness, and this is what we're trying to do. So compassion, you know, we're here at SCCM, everybody's talking sepsis and drug therapies, and this could be viewed as a softer topic in a way, you know, how we treat, you know, burnout with a healthy work environment through compassion, but in fact, it's probably a harder topic because people have a tougher time with it. So compassion is not, you know, some soft concept. It really is a rigorous stance. And what we try to help people see is that having a strong back to do the tough work of critical care and then having a soft front so you can be fully present and open to what is before you is really the key. And so we do this in a lot of different ways. And it's really catching on across the country. You know, many people now are into reflective practices, contemplative practices, yoga, mindfulness, meditation, you know, exercise, etc. And what we're trying to do is to show our students that all of this is important. It's as important as them learning how to care for a patient with pneumonia, how to care for themselves so they can stay in the workforce, so they can be good colleagues with their physicians, with respiratory therapists, etc. And so we've, we've published a fair amount about this. I also, as a dean, have sent teams of individuals to a place called Upaya. It's a Zen Buddhist retreat up in Santa Fe Mountains. It has an eight-day program called Being With Dying. And I send teams, I raise the money, I send teams of nurses, physicians, chaplains, social workers to be together in an eight-day retreat to really learn how to use meditation and mindfulness to better care for the individuals 
that we see in critical care. So that's our Compassionate Care Initiative. I've hired this expert, Susan Barrow-Wu, who's a professor to help me run it. She's published a book on leaves falling gently, which is looking at people at the end of life and how they can use meditation and mindfulness in some meaningful ways. She's had over $6 million of NIH funding to look at using mindfulness and meditation with bone marrow transplant patients, for example. Not that it will necessarily prolong their life, although those studies are in process, but that will improve the quality of their life. And if you ask nurses and physicians today and other healthcare providers, they're really looking for increased quality, increased meaning in their life to kind of slow the pace down. And so that's what we're doing. I tell the story about Jonathan Bartels, one of our ER nurses. He's instituted what's called the PAUSE. He's part of my Compassionate Care Initiative. We sent him to Upaya. He's an ER nurse. He was very worried about his colleagues in the ER who he felt were getting burned out. You know, big traumas would come in. Maybe a seven-year-old girl weren't able to save her. You know, the team does a rough code, tough code. The family's there. Everybody's upset and then they have to rip their gloves off and go right out to the next patient and most ERs are like ours in academic health care centers the ER is full and so he instituted a 45 second pause and he just wrote it up in critical care nurse February 2014 and the pause is where after a patient dies in a code in the ER at University of Virginia. Everyone stops for 45 seconds. It doesn't seem like a lot of time, but for 45 seconds they honor that patient that they didn't even know, very likely. Sometimes the family is there, and they just honor that patient in their own way, and they also honor the great work that each one of those team members did. Okay, So it really is changing the way we work together, feel about each other. Rather than have a big policy on this, a couple of months later after Jonathan started this, there was a tough code up in the uh, one of the medical units. And the anesthesiologist there who was running the code said after when it didn't go so well, he just said, could we all stop and do the pause like they do in the ER? So as a nurse, we actually feel that we, you know, are getting our mission across when we have our anesthesia colleagues decide that it's worth and valuable to do. And this is kind of a rough and tough guy. So we know that there is a need for compassion. There's a need for how we treat each other, which will help in a healthy work environment. That sounds very powerful. I wanted to get some more details from you about how you are going about educating your students. Mm -hmm. Do you have them go through scenarios? Is it more of the checklist? that we are all very fond of nowadays? Do do, do you seek to get buy-in from the other members of the health Mm -hmm. provider team? How how do you go about it? Yeah, that's a great example. So let me tell you about our education initiative. We have a center for interprofessional education. Again, it took me five years. I worked with the dean of medicine on that. We just got a big HRSA grant, a million-dollar grant, to train nursing and medical students together. And we're doing it in a couple of ways. One is every third year, uh, nursing and medical students student has a series of modules. Many of them are simulations. One is called Difficult Conversations, How to Give a Patient and Family Bad News. And the medical students and nursing students with standardized patients, actors, work on that together. Another one is the Room of Errors. And this is another grant that we got. Julie Hayslip is a pediatric intensivist. And she has designed a room in, in 
it's a pediatric intensive care room with up to 30 errors, mistakes in the room, you know, needles left undone, IVs going the wrong rate, you know. So the room has um, got lots of errors in it. So the study is where nurses, physicians, pharmacists, occupational and physical therapists all go in one at a time, and they have a checklist where they look at what are the errors. They write the errors down. And so the study is that each group goes in on their own, each student representing the disciplines, they go in on their own. Then they go in together to another room. And what they find is that they can identify most of the errors when they work together as a team. And so Julie Hayslip is a fabulous pediatric intensivist. Actually, I just hired her. So she now works for me in the School of Nursing. I've hired a couple of physician colleagues. So we're doing a lot of things. The students also have come up with ideas where they want to bring the soul back into health care. For example, our students decided they really weren't getting enough about end-of-life care. So they developed a program called the Heart of Medicine. They got speakers. We raised money for it. And actually, Pranay was in charge of it. He's one of my favorite medical students who's now up at Yale. So they have different sessions, discussion sessions, where they really talk about end of life and how they can give better care. And you know, with 20% of our patients dying in ICUs every day, we really need to focus on that more. So we have this Compassionate Care Initiative going, and it's really to have a safe and high-functioning health care environments with healthy and happy nurses, physicians, and other health care workers, where heart and humanness are valued and embodied. And you know, we don't talk about happiness enough. What if People came to work happy and left even happier. What a concept. Yes. What a concept. And that's what healthy work environments, and that's what our Compassionate Care Initiative at the University of Virginia is all about. How do you retrofit healthcare providers who aren't students in your program mm-hmm. to adapt to this right, paradigm? Right. Well, one of the things I'm doing is to, to invite people to consider going to Upaya this eight-day Zen Buddhist retreat. I've sent 70 people. So I've sent some attendings that have been there for 20 and 30 years. And I raised the money again for it. I think it's interesting how some people think that we won't have a real healthy environment until some of our colleagues, who are kind of crispy around the edges, right, are not always helpful and not always respectful until maybe they retire. But I don't think we can wait that long. You know, I think we have to pick champions, or ambassadors we call them. One of the things that we're doing at the university is we have 26 inpatient units, so we have what we're calling compassionate care ambassadors in every single one of these units. And they're doing things, many of which are related to meditation, mindfulness, and how to really look at what patients and families need by addressing the healthcare worker themselves first. So I have built two rooms in the School of Nursing. One is a resilience room where we have meditation five days a week in mindfulness. We have classes now. We're teaching a medical yoga course for the very first time this spring. We have built a compassionate care classroom that has 40 yoga mats, and we do free. I say it's free yoga. I pay for it. But it's free to students, physicians, medical students. It's actually for the whole entire university. And just last week, I got a beautiful note from one of our palliative care physicians, Chris Moore, who wrote to me, thank you for building this room. You know, it's really, we are in a small campus, and he can just come right across the street, you know. So we've been doing this now. We're going on our fifth year. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. How do you justify this type of program with, for example, the financial 
mm-hmm. administrators in the hospital, sure. or for example, even the, the policymakers who are more mm-hmm. concerned about doing things efficiently, and mm-hmm. others who, like we were talking about before, mm-hmm. are more concerned about going through the checklists and making sure that sure. everything is done yeah. exactly the same every single right. time. Well, you know, distracted healthcare providers make mistakes. And what I'm trying to do is the opposite, having people be focused and fully aware of what they're doing. That's being a resilient provider. So I think this is cost-effective. One of our students just received a grant from the Lown Institute, and this is what they're very interested, overuse or, you know, escalating care costs. And what we are hypothesizing is that if we train healthcare providers to be able to pay attention in the moment, be fully focused, that they may indeed order less tests, be able to look through the record quicker, and be able to actually talk to their colleagues in a more reasoned way. So this Lown Institute offered it for medicine and medical students, and this nurse partnered with a medical student at UVA, and she won one of these awards. So they're doing that study right now. I do think that it's right to look at healthcare and finances. But if we go back to the beginning, talking about burnout, you know, it costs us a lot of money to replace a nurse, and it costs a lot of money to replace a physician who is lost to whether it's critical care or the profession because of burnout and post-traumatic stress. Not to mention that there is data about the high suicide rate among physicians specifically. I believe it's something like 400 a year. High burnout hurts the professions and it also impacts patient care, right? Totally. It impacts patient care. In fact, one study out of the University of Pennsylvania showed that when nurses were highly burnt out in specific hospitals that they had a much higher incidence of infection rates. And when strategies such as mindfulness or reflective practices were looked at, there was a 30% decrease, over 6,000 fewer infections and a cost savings of $69 million. So there are other studies like this out there. And I think we need to not only look at the personal cost to the individual and the healthcare provider, but also to the damage to patients and families. That's a pretty powerful argument right there. I, I agree. Well, this sounds like fascinating work. Thank you so much for doing it. Well, and you're welcome. Thank you so much for sharing it with the rest of us. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I am Ludwig Lin. Thank you. Ludwig Lin, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altibates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, 
please email icriticalcare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.